0: Section forty nine of the Life of Samuel Johnson, volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, volume four, by James Boswell, section forty nine. As Johnson had abundant homage paid to him during his life, so no writer in this nation ever had such an accumulation of literary honours after his death. Footnote. beside the dedications to him by dr goldsmith the reverend dr franklin and the reverend mr wilson which i have mentioned according to their dates there was one by a lady of a versification of anningate and adjut and one by the ingenious mr walker of his rhetorical grammar i have introduced into this work several compliments paid to him in the writings of his contemporaries but the number of them is so great that we may fairly say that there was almost a general tribute let me not be forgetful of the honour done to him by colonel middleton of gweninog near denby who on the banks of a rivulet in his park where johnson delighted to stand and repeat verses erected an urn with the following inscription this spot was often dignified by the presence of samuel johnson doctor of laws whose moral writings exactly conformable to the precepts of christianity gave ardour to virtue and confidence to truth As no inconsiderable circumstance of his fame we must reckon the extraordinary zeal of the artists to extend and perpetuate his image i can enumerate a bust by mr Nollikins and the many casts which are made from it several pictures by sir joshua reynolds from one of which in the possession of the duke of dorset mr humphrey executed a beautiful miniature in enamel one by mrs francis reynolds sir joshua's sister one by mr zoffany and one by mr opie and the following engravings of his portrait one one by cook from sir joshua for the proprietor's edition of his folio dictionary two one from ditto by ditto for their quarto edition three one from opie by heath for harrison's edition of his dictionary four one from novican's bust of him by bartolozzi for fielding's quarto edition of his dictionary five one small from harding by trotter for his beauties six one small from sir joshua by trotter for his lives of the poets Seven one small from Sir Joshua by Hall, for The Rambler. 8. One small from an original drawing in the possession of Mr. John Simcoe, etched by Trotter, for another edition of his Lives of the Poets. 9. One small, no painter's name, etched by Taylor for his Johnsoniana. 10. One folio whole length, with his oak stick as described in Boswell's tour, drawn and etched by Trotter. 11. One large mezzotinto from Sir Joshua by Doughty. 12. One large Roman head from Sir Joshua by Marquis 13. One Octavo holding a book to his eye from Sir Joshua by Hall for his works fourteen one small from a drawing from the life and engraved by trotter for his life published by kearsley fifteen one large from opie by mr townley brother of mr townley of the commons an ingenious artist who resided some time at berlin and has the honour of being engraver to his majesty the king of prussia this is one of the finest mezzatintos that ever was executed and what renders it of extraordinary value the plate was destroyed after four or five impressions only were taken off one of them is in the possession of sir william scott mr tarnley has lately been prevailed with to execute and publish another of the same that it may be more generally circulated among the admirers of dr johnson one large from sir joshua's first picture of him by heath for this work in quarto seventeen one octavo by baker for the octavo edition eighteen and one for Lavater's essay on physiognomy in which johnson's countenance is analysed upon the principles of that fanciful writer there are also several seals with his head cut on them particularly a very fine one by that eminent artist edward birch esq royal academy in the possession of the younger dr charles burney let me add as a proof of the popularity of his character that there are copper pieces struck at birmingham with his head impressed on them which pass current as there and in the neighbouring parts of the country boswell Note, see appendix h for notes on this footnote. End of footnote a sermon upon that event was preached in st mary's church oxford before the university by the rev mr Agatha of magdalen college footnote. it is not yet published in a letter to me mr Agatha says My sermon before the University was more engaged with Dr. Johnson's moral than his intellectual character. It particularly examined his fear of death, and suggested several reasons for the apprehension of the good, and the indifference of the infidel, in their last hours. This was illustrated by contrasting the death of Dr. Johnson and Mr. Hume the text was job chapter twenty one verses twenty two to twenty six boswell it was preached on july the twenty third seventeen eighty six and not at johnson's death it is entitled on the difference between the deaths of the righteous and the wicked illustrated in the instance of dr samuel johnson and david hume esq the text is from Job, chapter 21, verses 23, not twenty-two, twenty-six. It was published in 1800. Neither Johnson nor Hume is mentioned in the sermon itself by name. Its chief, perhaps its sole merit, is its brevity. The lives, the memoirs, the essays, both in prose and verse, which have been published concerning him would make many volumes the numerous attacks too upon him i consider as part of his consequence upon the principle which he himself so well knew and asserted many who trembled at his presence were forward in assault when they no longer apprehended danger when one of his little pragmatical foes was invidiously snarling at his fame at sir joshua reynolds's table the reverend dr parr exclaimed with his usual bold animation Aye, now that the old lion is dead every ass thinks he may kick at him a monument for him in westminster abbey was resolved upon soon after his death and was supported by a most respectable contribution May the 26th, 1791. After the doctor's death, Burke, Sir Joshua Reynolds, and Boswell sent an ambling circular letter to me, begging subscriptions for a monument for him. I would not deign to write an answer, but sent down word by my footman, as I would have done to parish officers, with a brief that I would not subscribe. Horace Walpole, Letters in Malone's correspondence are complaints of the backwardness of the members of the literary club to pay the amounts nominally subscribed by them. End footnote. But the Dean and chapter of St Paul's having come to a resolution of admitting monuments there upon a liberal and magnificent plan, that cathedral was afterwards fixed on as the place in which a cenotaph should be erected to his memory and in the cathedral of his native city of lichfield a smaller one is to be erected it was says malone owing to reynolds that the monument was erected in st paul's in his journey to flanders he had lamented that sculpture languished in england and was almost confined to monuments to eminent men but even in these it had not fair play for Westminster Abbey was so full that the recent monuments appeared ridiculous, being stuck up in odd holes and corners. On the other hand, St Paul's looked forlorn and desolate. Here, monuments should be erected under the direction of the Royal Academy. He took advantage of Johnson's death to make a beginning with the plan which he had here sketched, and induced his friends to give up their intention of setting up the monument in the abbey he asked dr parr but in vain to include in the epitaph johnson's title of professor of ancient literature to the royal academy as it was on this pretext that he persuaded the academicians to subscribe a hundred guineas the question was raised whose monument should be first erected in st paul's and johnson proposed milton's end of footnote. to compose his epitaph could not but excite the warmest competition of genius footnote. the reverend dr parr on being requested to undertake it thus expressed himself in a letter to william seward esq i leave this mighty task to some hardier and some abler writer The variety and splendour of Johnson's attainments the peculiarities of his character his private virtues and his literary publications fill me with confusion and dismay when i reflect upon the confined and difficult species of composition in which alone they can be expressed with propriety upon his monument but i understand that this great scholar and warm admirer of Johnson has yielded to repeated solicitations, and executed the very difficult undertaking possible. Dr Johnson's monument, consisting of a colossal figure leaning against a column, has, since the death of our author, been placed in St Paul's Cathedral. The epitaph was written by the Rev Dr Parr, and is as follows. Samuel Lee Johnson, Grammatico et critico, scriptorum anglicorum literate perito, poetae luminibus sententiarum et ponderibus feborum admirabili, magistro vetutis gravissimo, homini optimo et singularis exempli. Quivixit annes septuaginta quinque, mensibus duobus diebus tredecim. Decesit idibus decembribus anno Christi millesimo septuagintesimo quarto. Sepultus in aribus Sancti Petri Westmonasteriensis die decimo tercio ante Kalendas Januarias anno Christi millesimo septuagintesimo quinto. Amici et sodales rari pecunia condata hoc monumentum faciendum curaverunt on a scroll in his hand are the following words in greek en marca recipon onan taxe ossai ham oib on one side of the monument faciebat johannes bacon sculptor in the year of christ seventeen ninety five the subscription for this monument which cost eleven hundred guineas was begun by the literary club malone End of footnote. If Laudari a laudato biro, be praise which is highly estimable, I should not forgive myself were I to omit the following sepulchral verses on the author of the English dictionary, written by the right honourable Henry Flood. No need of Latin or of Greek to grace our Johnson's memory or inscribe his grave, his native language claims this mournful space to pay the immortality he gave. To prevent any misconception on this subject, Mr Malone, by whom these lines were obligingly communicated, requests me to add the following remark. In justice to the late mr flood now himself wanting and highly meriting an epitaph from his country to which his transcendent talents did the highest honour as well as the most important service it should be observed that these lines were by no means intended as a regular monumental inscription for dr johnson had he undertaken to write an appropriated and discriminative epitaph for that excellent and extraordinary man those who knew Mr. Flood's vigour of mind will have no doubt that he would have produced one worthy of his illustrious subject. But the fact was merely this. In December 1789, after a large subscription had been made for Dr. Johnson's monument, to which Mr. Flood liberally contributed, Mr. Malone happened to call on him at his house in Burner Street and the conversation turning on the proposed monument mr malone maintained that the epitaph by whomsoever it should be written ought to be in latin mr flood thought differently the next morning in the postscript to a note on another subject he mentioned that he continued of the same opinion as on the preceding day and subjoined the lines above given boswell Cooper also composed an epitaph for Johnson, though not one of much merit. End of the character of Samuel Johnson has, I trust, been so developed in the course of this work, that they who have honoured it with a perusal may be considered as well acquainted with him. As, however, it may be expected that I should collect into one view the capital and distinguishing features of this extraordinary man i shall endeavour to acquit myself of that part of my biographical undertaking however difficult it may be to do that which many of my readers will do better for themselves note. as i do not see any reason to give a different character of my illustrious friend now from what i formerly gave the greatest part of the sketch of him in my journal of a tour to the Hebrides, is here adopted Boswell, end footnote. His figure was large and well formed, and his countenance of the cast of an ancient statue. Yet his appearance was rendered strange, and somewhat uncouth by convulsive cramps, By the scars of that distemper which it was once imagined the royal touch could cure and by a slovenly mode of dress he had the use only of one eye yet so much does mind govern and even supply the deficiency of organs that his visual perceptions as far as they extended were uncommonly quick and accurate So morbid was his temperament, that he never knew the natural joy of a free and vigorous use of his limbs. When he walked, it was like the struggling gait of one in fetters. When he rode, he had no command or direction of his horse, but was carried as if in a balloon. That with his constitution and habits of life, he should have lived seventy-five years, Is a proof that an inherent vivida vis is a powerful preservative of the human frame man is in general made up of contradictory qualities these will ever show themselves in strange succession where a consistency in appearance at least if not in reality has not been attained by long habits of philosophical discipline In proportion to the native vigour of the mind the contradictory qualities will be the more prominent and more difficult to be adjusted and therefore we are not to wonder that johnson exhibited an eminent example of this remark which i have made upon human nature at different times he seemed a different man in some respects not however in any great or essential article upon which he had fully employed his mind and settled certain principles of duty, but only in his manners and in the display of argument and fancy in his talk. He was prone to superstition, but not to credulity. Though his imagination might incline him to a belief of the marvellous and the mysterious, his vigorous reason examined the evidence with jealousy he was a sincere and zealous christian of high church of england and monarchical principles which he would not tamely suffer to be questioned and had perhaps at an early period narrowed his mind somewhat too much both as to religion and politics his being impressed with the danger of extreme latitude in either though he was a very independent spirit occasion appearing somewhat unfavourable to the prevalence of that noble freedom of sentiment which is the best possession of man nor can it be denied that he had many prejudices which however frequently suggested many of his pointed sayings that rather show a playfulness of fancy than any settled malignity He was steady and inflexible in maintaining the obligations of religion and morality, both from a regard for the order of society, and from a veneration for the great source of all order. Correct, nay, stern in his taste, hard to please, and easily offended. He was always indulgent to the young. He never attacked the unassuming nor meant to terrify the diffident Fanny Burney. Impetuous and irritable in his temper, but of a most humane and benevolent heart, which showed itself not only in a most liberal charity, as far as his circumstances would allow, but in a thousand instances of active benevolence. Footnote. In the Olla Podrida, a collection of essays published at oxford there is an admirable paper upon the character of johnson written by the reverend dr home the last excellent bishop of norwich the following passage is eminently happy to reject wisdom because the person of him who communicates it is uncouth and his manners are inelegant what is it but to throw away a pine-apple and a sign for a reason the roughness of its coat boswell End of he was afflicted with a bodily disease which made him often restless and fretful and with a constitutional melancholy the clouds of which darkened the brightness of his fancy and gave a gloomy cast to his whole course of thinking We therefore ought not to wonder at his sallies of impatience and passion at any time especially when provoked by obtrusive ignorance or presuming petulance and allowance must be made for his uttering hasty and satirical sallies even against his best friends and surely when it is considered that amid sickness and sorrow the English Dictionary was written amidst inconvenience and distraction, in sickness and in sorrow. Preface to Johnson's Dictionary and a footnote. He exerted his faculties in so many works for the benefit of mankind, and particularly that he achieved the great and admirable Dictionary of our language. We must be astonished at his resolution. The solemn text of him to whom much is given much will be required seems to have been ever present to his mind in a rigorous sense and to have made him dissatisfied with his labours and acts of goodness however comparatively great so that the unavoidable consciousness of his superiority was in that respect a cause of disquiet He suffered so much from this, and from the gloom which perpetually haunted him, and made solitude frightful, that it may be said of him, If in this life only he had hope, he was of all men most miserable. He loved praise when it was brought to him, but was too proud to seek for it. He was somewhat susceptible of flattery. As he was general and unconfined in his studies, he cannot be considered as master of any one particular science, but he had accumulated a vast and various collection of learning and knowledge, which was so arranged in his mind as to be ever in readiness to be brought forth. But his superiority over other learned men consisted chiefly in what may be called the art of thinking. The art of using his mind a certain continual power of seizing the useful substance of all that he knew and exhibiting it in a clear and forcible manner so that knowledge which we often see to be no better than lumber in men of dull understanding was in him true evident and actual wisdom his moral precepts are practical for they are drawn from an intimate acquaintance with human nature his maxims carry conviction for they are founded on the basis of common sense and a very attentive and minute survey of real life his mind was so full of imagery that he might have been perpetually a poet yet it is remarkable that however rich his prose is in this respect His poetical pieces in general have not much of that splendour, but are rather distinguished by strong sentiment and acute observation, conveyed in a harmonious and energetic verse, particularly in heroic couplets. Though usually grave and even awful in his deportment, he possessed uncommon and peculiar powers of wit and humour. He frequently indulged himself in colloquial pleasantry, and the heartiest merriment was often enjoyed in his company, with this great advantage, that as it was entirely free from any poisonous tincture of vice or impiety, it was salutary to those who shared in it. He had accustomed himself to such accuracy in his common conversation though a perfect resemblance of johnson is not to be found in any age parts of his character are admirably expressed by clarendon in drawing that of lord falkland whom the noble and masterly historian describes at his seat near oxford such an immenseness of wit such a solidity of judgment So infinite a fancy bound in by a most logical ratiocination his acquaintance was cultivated by the most polite and accurate men so that his house was an university in less volume whither they came not so much for repose as study and to examine and refine those grosser propositions which laziness and consent made current conversation. Bell's account of Ménage may also be quoted as exceedingly applicable to the great subject of this work. His illustrious friends erected a very glorious monument to him in the collection entitled Ménagiana. Those who judge of things aright will confess that this collection is very proper to show the extent of genius and learning which was the character of menage and i may be bold to say that the excellent works he published will not distinguish him from other learned men so advantageously as this to publish books of great learning to make greek and latin verses exceedingly well turned is not a common talent i own neither is it extremely rare. It is incomparably more difficult to find men who can furnish discourse about an infinite number of things, and who can diversify them in an hundred ways. How many authors are there who are admired for their works, on account of the vast learning that is displayed in them, who are not able to sustain a conversation? Those who know Ménage only by his books might think he resembled those learned men. But if you show the Ménagiana, you distinguish him from them, and make him known by a talent which is given to very few learned men. There, it appears, that he was a man who spoke off-hand a thousand good things his memory extended to what was ancient and modern to the court and to the city to the dead and to the living languages to things serious and things jocose. in a word to a thousand sorts of subjects that which appeared a trifle to some readers of the menagiana who did not consider circumstances caused admiration in other readers who minded The difference between what a man speaks without preparation, and that which he prepares for the press. And therefore we cannot sufficiently commend the care which his illustrious friends took to erect a monument so capable of giving him immortal glory. They were not obliged to rectify what they had heard him say, for in so doing they had not been faithful historians of his conversations. Boswell. Boswell's quotation from Clarendon differs somewhat from the original. He had accustomed himself to such accuracy in his common conversation that he at all times expressed his thoughts with great force and an elegant choice of language, the effect of which was aided by his having a loud voice and a slow, deliberate utterance in him were united a most logical head with a most fertile imagination which gave him an extraordinary advantage in arguing for he could reason close or wide as he saw best for the moment exulting in his intellectual strength and dexterity he could when he pleased be the greatest sophist that ever contended in the lists of declamation And from a spirit of contradiction and a delight in showing his powers he would often maintain the wrong side with equal warmth and ingenuity so that when there was an audience his real opinions could seldom be gathered from his talk though when he was in company with a single friend he would discuss a subject with genuine fairness but he was too conscientious to make Error permanent and pernicious by deliberately writing it, and in all his numerous works he earnestly inculcated what appeared to him to be the truth, his piety being constant, and the ruling principle of all his conduct. To this finely drawn character we may add the noble testimony of Sir Joshua Reynolds. His pride had no meanness in it. There was nothing little or mean about him. Such was Samuel Johnson, a man whose talents, acquirements, and virtues were so extraordinary, that the more his character is considered, the more he will be regarded by the present age and by posterity, with admiration and reverence. In Johnson's character of Behave, there is much that applies equally well to himself. Thus died Behave, a man formed by nature for great designs, and guided by religion in the exertion of his abilities. He was of a robust and athletic constitution of body, so hardened by early severities and wholesome fatigue, That he was insensible of any sharpness of air or inclemency of weather. He was tall and remarkable for extraordinary strength. There was in his air and motion something rough and artless, but so majestic and great at the same time, that no man ever looked upon him without veneration and a kind of tacit submission to the superiority of his genius. He was never soured by calumny and attraction nor ever thought it necessary to confute them for they are sparks said he which if you do not blow them will go out of themselves he was not to be overawed or depressed by the presence frowns or insolence of great men but persisted on all occasions in the right with a resolution always present and always calm nor was he unacquainted with the art of recommending truth by elegance and embellishing the philosopher with polite literature he knew the importance of his own writings to mankind and lest he might by roughness and barbarity of style too frequent among men of great learning disappoint his own intentions and make his labours less useful he did not neglect the politer arts of eloquence and poetry thus was his learning at once various and exact profound and agreeable he asserted on all occasions the divine authority and sacred efficacy of the holy scriptures and maintained that they alone taught the way of salvation and that they only could give peace of mind